Thank you so much, Jim. Jim and Anna recently joined us in membership. I walked in last, uh, I think it was Sunday afternoon when they were practicing, and I thought the Lord had returned because there was a trumpet playing um, the last verse of It Is Well With My Soul. And so thank you for that. What a blessing. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. The rest of us are turning Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and chapter 10 this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. So you arrive at a doctor's office and perhaps it's a new doctor, which is always a dread. Or maybe you are going to a certain specialist for the first time, and you're given a form to fill out. They always say, you know, here's a pen, here's the papers, you know, the nurse will get this from you when you, when you go back. Maybe you have been blessed enough to get an email ahead of time where you have filled out the electronic forms before you ever got there. But whatever the case, you look at this form and it asks you all types of unique questions for you to answer. Questions that make you, you. Your first name, your middle initial, your last name, your date of birth, your social security number, your height, and then we all lie on our weight until they go back and actually weigh us, right? And, and you know, and all these things. Your, what's your address? What's your medical history? Tell us about your parents. Tell us about your grandparents. Tell us about your kids. Tell us about your marital status. And all of these questions that are going, going to go into your file that are going to make you uniquely you. Age, gender, language that you speak, number of children. There are questions maybe that they're not allowed to ask that also are included in this list that makes you uniquely you and only you. Economic status, income, level of education, IQ level. Can you imagine if they asked for your IQ on these? What are your desires? What are your aspirations? What's your work ethic? All of the answers to these questions which make you unique. It's what makes you different from someone else. And if you look around our congregation, I'm so thankful to say that God has given us such a diversity of backgrounds and ages and economic statuses and, and, and perhaps first languages and cultures and, and all of these different things that we have a great diversity here. And perhaps there are some things in your life that wish you could maybe change in one way or another. And every time you go through this process, you're reminded once again of every medication that you take and you're reminded of all of your histories, medical histories, and all these things and all of these answers that make you uniquely you in some way. And yet in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 2, there's a little phrase, the beginning of verse 2, that says, it is the same for all. This passage introduces us to something this morning that I'm going to call, if you want to have a title for messages, I am rarely original with titles. If you want a title for the message, it would be this, The Great Equalizer. That Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, introduces us to The Great Equalizer. 
Because no matter your age, no matter your status, no matter your income level, no matter your country of origin, culture, language, or any other unique identifier that you could put on any piece of paper, there is one great equalizer that puts us all on the same plane. It's an equalizer that's been true since the fall. It's an unchanging fact of life. It's a statistic that is 100% true. 100% of people die. This great equalizer is out of your control. Life can't be extended, nor can death be avoided by money or influence. As, As our technology continues to increase, so the life expectancy continues to go up. But yet it's still that, a life expectancy. And there are some who have the wealth and the the status to maybe do this weird thing of having their heads preserved and cryogenic frozen so that one day as as technology increases maybe their their you know uh, their spirit can be transferred to another body and somehow they can live again. But we all know the truth that we only get one shot at this. And there's a great fact that it puts everybody on the same level, and it's that all life is in the hand of God, and no matter what you want to be true or what you wish to be true, 100% of people die. It's life's great equalizer. Let's begin reading Ecclesiastes chapter 9 with that in mind and you understanding how Solomon is kind of tailoring the introduction to his argument for 9 and 10. Let's read this with that in mind and see if that sheds some light on what the author is doing here. The Holy Spirit records through the pen of Solomon, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. Talking about examining life under the sun, life on this earth. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are all in the hand of God. Whether it be love or hate, Man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears, it is he who shuns an oath. There is an evil that is done under the sun from our perspective on this earth. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madnesses in their hearts while they live And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. And then the proverbial phrase, a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished, already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Heavenly Father, as we look into this passage, would you use your spirit to illumine our hearts, teach us who you are, in your name, amen. My friend, one day you will pass from this world into eternity. At some points in our life, it seems like more of a stark reality than others. But at some time, you will pass into eternity. And the most loving thing that I can do this morning is to tell you the truth and to prepare you for that day. If you're visiting with us, you're like, Pastor, you're kind of a Debbie Downer, okay? 
The book of Ecclesiastes, as we said at the very beginning, was probably written on a Monday morning. Because he's like, this is life. This is just what it is. It is what it is. I mean, it's, it's vanity. That doesn't mean it's, it's bad. It means it's havel. It's breath. It's here and then. It's gone so fast. And from our perspective, things just don't make sense. Why don't the righteous people, why aren't they blessed and the wicked people suffer? Why does all of this happen? Every time you see that phrase, under the sun, Solomon is reminding you that he's writing from a perspective of what you see on this earth. And what you see on this earth is that people live and people die. And so we must be prepared for that day. One day, you will walk that road. You will close your eyes here on this earth and you will open them in eternity. For some, this happens after living many years on this earth. For others, it happens at a young age. But for all of us here this morning who have life left under the sun... It will happen. Seven times in two chapters, Solomon uses this phrase, under the sun. From our perspective, life on this earth. He's saying you have been given the opportunity to be alive today, right now. And God has instructions for you who are alive today, right here, right now. And so what we're going to do for the structure of the sermon this morning is we're going to play a little bit of Scripture Jeopardy. That means that the answer is given to you and you have to come up with a question. And for many of you, you're like, for the first time in my life, Jeopardy makes sense, right? Because I have no idea what was going on in that show, but now I understand, right? So Solomon gives us the answer, and what we're going to do is we're going to come up with the two questions that make the answers make sense. And that's kind of how it's structured, just two questions this morning that are prompting his answers. The first question would be, how do I prepare to enter eternity? Because he's giving you this statement of the same thing happens to everyone. Don't look at someone else and say that will never happen to me. How do I prepare for eternity? And the second question is, how do I live my life while I'm still here? Those are the two questions that Solomon's going to answer for us. How do I prepare for eternity? And how do I live my life while I'm still here. So let's answer the first question. How do I prepare for eternity? The answer is simple. Since every one of us will die, you prepare for that moment by recognizing that the only path to God's grace, His love, and His favor is through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6. I am... The way, the truth, and the life. Exclusive statement. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now make no mistake, all paths and all religions and all philosophies and all worldviews do lead to God, but only one leads to heaven. Only one leads to his love and his grace. The other leads to his justice and his wrath poured out for all of eternity. There's a place called hell that God created for Satan and his demons. And all those who don't side with Christ will find their eternity under God's just wrath. If you're here and you're not a Christian, perhaps you would ask this question, Pastor Joe, I, that sounds kind of harsh to me. I mean, if God prepared hell for Satan and his demons, no matter what my mom says, I'm neither Satan nor am I a demon. 
So why do I have to go there? Well, God is so holy and so righteous that he cannot allow any sinner to enter into heaven. No sin. And no one whose sins aren't covered. All those who've sinned must be kept out of heaven. Just like Adam and Eve were kept out of the Garden of Eden, so all those who've sinned must be kept out of heaven. And you and I, friend, were born sinners. You don't do wrong things. You, you, you aren't a sinner because you do wrong things. You, you sin, you do those wrong things because in your nature you are a sinner. You can't help but sin. You don't have to teach a child to lie or to be angry. We're by nature children of wrath and thus destined for hell, but God sent Jesus into this world to take your punishment for you so that you don't have to experience separation from God. You don't have to experience his rejection, a separation from his grace and his love. You see, Jesus was rejected by God on the cross, so you don't have to be rejected by God for all of eternity. He lived the life you could never live, and he died in your place. He paid the price for your sins, for the sins of the world without distinction on the cross, so that you don't have to pay the price for your sins in hell for all of eternity. And so Jesus came to be your substitute. The way in which you prepare for eternity is to align under the authority of God and accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your rescuer. That you are a sinner, but Christ can be your Savior. There's nothing you can do on your own to earn God's favor. You must come through Jesus. And if you're here and you're not a Christian... God is calling you this morning to bow your knee to Him, to hold on to Christ as your only way. You know, if, if, if you can imagine in your mind's eye with me that God is on an island and you have to somehow get to God, that's what everybody's trying to do, and you will cross some bridge to get to God. Perhaps you've tried to cross the bridge of church membership, or you've tried to cross the bridge of doing good works, or you've tried to cross the bridge of giving money to the church. And my friend, all those bridges will fail. Because the only bridge that gets to God is the bridge of faith. Faith doesn't save you. God saves you. But the only way to get to God is to hold on to Him by faith. To grasp Him and to say, there's nothing else but casting myself into your arms by faith that will grant me forgiveness from sins. And so if you have more questions about this, or you feel God tugging at your heart, I'd love to talk to you more about this after the service to help you understand how you can be best prepared for eternity. Death is the great equalizer of all people, and it is very important that you prepare yourself to enter into eternity. And since death is the great equalizer, the second question that we have to answer is, okay, but we're not dead yet, right? I mean, if you're here... Right, A living dog is better than a dead lion. I'm not calling you dogs, okay? I'm just saying the proverb rings true. I need to grasp to lay hold of Christ by faith to call out to him, not of works, in order to be prepared to meet him in eternity. But that leaves me with a life here. How am I to operate my life? And that's our second question that Solomon answers. And the answer is this. You live your life in two different ways. The first one would be to enjoy life before the face of God. 
Enjoy life before the face of God. And secondly, as we'll see later in the message, you heed wisdom's call. So first of all, enjoy life before the face of God. Verses 7 through 10. Look at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you're doing. First of all, live life to the fullest, to the glory of God. How do I enjoy life before the face of God? I live life to the fullest, to the glory of God. Ben mentioned it well at the beginning of the service. When you realize the brevity of life and the certainty of death, the unsaved world has two options. Live it up, eat, sleep, and drink, merry, for tomorrow we die. YOLO, you only live once. I'm going to live a life of hedonism, trying to find happiness, or I'm going to descend into the depths of depression because I know I can never find happiness. But as a Christian friend, we have a joyful third option, and that is enjoy this life to the glory of God. That you recognize that God has given you things in this life as a shadow and a picture of eternity. That Solomon can say, as a child of God, you can eat your bread with joy. That you can sit down and you can enjoy life before the face of God. I used an illustration early on in the series. I'll, I'll use it again briefly. And that is that when you approach life, we are to enjoy it and recognize that it comes from God and enjoy it before God's face. And it would be as if someone had prepared a special meal for you, one that you would look forward to for weeks. And you come in through the door, and that person, that, whether it's a spouse or a loved one, whoever it is, has prepared this beautiful meal, your favorite meal, and you sit down, and you don't even say thank you since it's your favorite meal. You put your head down, and you devour the meal, never speaking a word, never saying thank you. It's your favorite food. You just enjoy it. Right? And then we would have problems after the meal, especially if it's your spouse, right? Put all this work into it. Or you walk up to the meal and you say, I can't believe that you would love me enough to do this for me. I don't need the meal. I just need you. Let's just talk. And your loved one says, no, no, I spent so much time on this. I did this because I love you. I'm, I'm sacrificing for you. I want you to enjoy what I'm providing for you. And you say, no, but I don't need that. I don't need that to be happy. It's a neoplatonistic view of, uh, of approaching life, of saying, you know, I, the, the, everything good is, is bad and the things of this world, we don't need to enjoy them, right? And, and no, the difference is you take a bite and you look up and you say, thank you. This is amazing. And you enjoy what's been provided and you look up at the provider and you say, Thank you. This reflects you. This meal reflects you. And I'm enjoying this because you made it. And no, it's not going to last forever. And no, it's not fully satisfying because that's not the point. The point is that it's a reflection of the provider. And I can enjoy it and relish in this moment before the face of the one who provided it. And friends, that's how we are to live life. This morning, I got my coffee and I stood at my back door and I looked across the fields. Did you guys see the sunrise this morning? It was gorgeous. Some of you live around too many houses and you can't enjoy a sunrise, right? But for us, we have a giant field that we don't have to take care of, we don't have to pay for, but we're blessed enough to be able to look across it. And, and there are no crops or anything and the sun slowly was a beautiful color of orange and then the sun came up and the hedonist says, I have to enjoy the sunrise because it's going to be gone soon, so I have to sit and take it all in for me, it's going to make me happy. And the depressed person says, that happens every day. I might as well go get back in bed. 
And the Christian can say, God, thank you. Look at that sunrise. Like, as my wife says, while I'm making coffee, you're making that. Isn't that amazing? Don't we have a good God who can, who can do things like that for our pleasure? Like, we, we look at that sunrise and we say, God, thank you so much that you have given us this, this beauty to enjoy. That we live life to the fullest for the glory of God. This is the Old Testament version. Ecclesiastes 9.7 is the Old Testament version of 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That we are, we are living our life recognizing God's glory. And we are living, seeing God's glory through this. This is the core of the Christian life. This is it, friends. To recognize that everything in your life should reflect His glory. And when things in your life do reflect His glory, or when beauty surrounds you, you say, thank you, Lord, because this reflects you. You know, people who are not Christians or even immature Christians view the Bible as a handbook and a manual to life that shows you everything you do and everything you can't do. And if a person approaches life this way, often you'll hear phrases like this, well, Christians don't do this, and Christians don't do that, and if you're a Christian, you don't do this, and I can't do that because I'm a Christian, all this kind of stuff. And, and those statements, there may be some, some things in those statements that are true because there are some pursuits and some actions that, as believers, we don't participate in, but not because the Bible is a manual that said do this and don't do this, but because God's glory is over here and we're walking this way. And as a result of walking this way, I'm not walking that way. Does that make sense? You see the difference? When you're asking yourself the question of whether or not you should be involved in something or do something in your life, ask yourself the question, can I pursue God through this? Do I see God's glory displayed in this? Does this action, this pursuit, help me display God's glory more to others? Here's the truth. If you are committed to loving God first and foremost in your life, everything else will take care of itself. So much so that Augustine, Church Father Augustine in in the 300s AD, preached a sermon from 1 John 4, actually his sermon was in the early 400s, about loving God in your life, from 1 John 4, talking about how much you should be involved in loving God and loving others. And here's a statement from his sermon. Love God and do what you will. Because if you're loving God, you're not going to sin. Right? So if I live my life in a pursuit of a person, and I am wrapped up in who God is, it no longer becomes a list of do's and don'ts. It becomes a person, and I pursue Christ. And obviously there are things that are not going to be a part of my life. Well, that makes sense. Because I'm pursuing God. And that's what Solomon wants you to see is that when you are pursuing God in this world, when you are living for the glory of God, that God approves of what you do because you're living for his glory. God does not approve of sin. And it doesn't make sense that you would sin if you're walking towards God. Why would I walk towards sin when I'm walking towards God? I can't do both at the same time. And so if I'm sinning, I'm not loving God first and foremost. Put God first in your life and say, God, everything's here. What glorifies you most in this scenario? And there are two specific examples that that he gives us in verse 8. Actually, two statements, one example. And I I will tell you that this verse kind of threw me for a loop 
when I was studying it. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. And I thought, okay, glorify God by washing your clothes and wearing perfume, <laughs> right? Because if you smell bad and your clothes are dirty, you can't reflect God's glory. And that's obviously not what it's talking about here. And so I want to share with you a couple of, of statements from a couple different commentaries on this. Tremper Longman would say it this way. Solomon is admonishing his hearers to waste no opportunity or expense to seize whatever good things life has to offer. He says, put your best clothes on and refresh yourself with oil or perfume. In other words, there are good things happening in life. Don't miss them. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can't have fun. That's what he's saying. Now you do it to the glory of God. We're not hedonists. That fun will not last. And if you expect it to, then you'll go into depression. Roland Murphy says a change of clothes to festive attire, which is what he's mentioning here, is mentioned several times in the Bible. He mentions Esther 8, Judges 10. The use of perfume is quite common. These occur here as symbols of joy and festivity. In other words, Solomon is saying, enjoy life. And some of you are saying, I do enjoy life. Well, you need to tell your face because it's telling everybody else that you don't, okay? Christians should be known as the most joyful and happy people in the world. Why? Because you have Jesus. Because you have the answer. Because you you not only have the provision, you know the provider. Don't miss life. What Solomon is saying is one way you live to the glory of God is to take time to enjoy what he's given you. Take time to eat the meal, but don't miss the provider. This is the day the Lord has made. What's the next phrase? I will rejoice and be glad. When was the last time you just woke up and you were just happy that it was that day? This is the day. This is it. Like God made this day for you. And this day will never happen again. This hour will never happen again. God made it. And so what's our response? We rejoice and we're glad in it. How does this flush out in your life, friends? Keep God first in your life. This does not mean that we respond with frivolity and carelessness. We say often in our home, listen, we take life very seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. It doesn't mean that you're frivolous and careless. It means that maybe, just maybe, you need to lighten up just a little bit. It's going to be okay. Go on vacation with your family to the glory of God. Take time on the weekend to do something that will help you laugh. Why would Solomon encourage us to live life this way? So we can be hedonists? No. Why would he do that? Because joy on this earth is a gift from God, and it shows us what's coming in eternity. Friends, there is coming a day when Jesus will return. He will conquer sin forever He will establish a new heaven and a new earth. And we will live as his children on that new heaven and new earth forever. An endless succession of events without sin. Where we will work without toil. Where we will have joy without pain. And every once in a while, every once in a while, we get a splash over into this world. 
It's that moment of holding that newborn baby where you just want that moment to last forever. It's that moment where you've made a connection with someone and there's, there's you know, there, you, you, you know each other on a deeper level. It's that moment where you did a house project and it actually worked. And the pipes aren't busting. And you say, it worked, right? Just little, teeny, tiny splashovers of what all of eternity is going to be like. And God's given you that as a shadow, as like an hors d'oeuvre to what all of eternity is going to be like. So don't miss it. Don't miss it. It also reveals his character of how much he loves you. Guys, God didn't have to make life joyful. But he did. God would still be good if nothing, quote-unquote, good happened to you for the rest of your life. God would still be good. Because he'd take you to heaven, and for all of eternity, you'd be with him. He'd still be good. But he allows these moments of joy and happiness as an hors d'oeuvre for what's to come because it shows you his character and how much he loves you. So don't miss it. That's what Solomon wants you to see. Secondly, how do we enjoy God before God's face? Well, we live life to the fullest for his glory. Secondly, we treasure life with the people that we love. Chapter 9 and verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life because it's going so fast. Friend, you don't know how long you're going to have your loved ones with you. Every moment is a treasure. How many of you look back to the days when your children were younger and think, where did all of that time go? Yesterday, they were so small. Take the time to tell your loved ones how much you love them. You know, we don't do a good job We don't do a good enough job of this, expressing our love to each other with our words. When I was uh, first a pastor, I was with a a seasoned pastor, and he said something that I have since taken, and he was talking to somebody in his church, and he said, hey, I'm going to tell you something that I'm going to say at your funeral. And I'm like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life, right? And afterwards, I was like, why did you say that to that person? He's like, because they're not going to be here to hear it when I say it. And I was like, oh. That's kind of good. The first time I tried it, it didn't go so well. Because it kind of came across like, hey, you're probably going to die soon, and I want you to hear this. You know, but I've learned to temper it a little bit. And some of you, I've come up to you, and I said, hey, can I tell you something? Not to be weird, but can I tell you something I'm going to say at your funeral? This is how you reflect the character of God in your life. And I haven't had the opportunity to do that with everybody in this building. But you should do that. Go to your husband and say, hey, if you die before me, here's something that I'm going to write about you. This is how you show God to me. This is how you reflect Christ. This is what I appreciate about you. Next time a birthday happens in your home, give the gift of words. What's the gift of words? Sit around a table, have a meal together, and say, hey, as a gift, one of my gifts to you, if you do say it's your only gift, it might not go across so well. But if one of your gifts to you this year is I'm going to share with you how I see the character of God reflected in your life. I'm going to share with you what I love about you. And it may seem kind of awkward to start. You're like, yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's kind of weird to get going. But then you realize, friends, we don't do this enough. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Take time to enjoy your loved ones. How many times have you said you would have that experience together and it just hasn't happened because work's gotten in the way? 
Take time now because you might not be able to later. That doesn't mean that we turn into hedonists. But friends, it means that there may not be a later. I'm so thankful for my father-in-law and my mother-in-law who would plan family gatherings and we would all come together on a yearly basis. Why? Because now he's in heaven. We have my mother-in-law here, but when we gather together as that side of the family, there's someone who's not there. And friends, I'm so thankful that when the gathering times took place that we made it a point to be there because now we can't. So take time and thank God for those times. Get around in a circle and hold hands. Do something weird and like sing a hymn, right? Pray, God, thank you for this time together. People are more important than things, friends. People are made in the image of God. When you take time to treasure the loved ones in your life, you're displaying the character of God and the way that he treasures his children. God treasures you so much as his child that he wants to spend eternity with you. That's an amazing thought, friend. Your life is short. It's a gift from God. I want to draw your attention to one phrase, and we'll move on because we have a lot of ground to cover this morning, but there's one phrase. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because look at the next phrase in verse 9. That is your portion in life. This is a really fascinating concept. And I don't have time to go deep into it, but if you just want to meditate for just a minute with me, this word portion means, okay, think of it in two ways. One would be an inheritance that is portioned out among people, but more, more realistically for us that are, that are here, it's like you have the most incredible apple pie that you've ever had, and you cut it up into eight pieces, and there are eight people, and you put your finger in one of the pieces, and you say, this one's mine, right? And as that pie is portioned out, you get your portion, and everybody gets their portion, but once you get yours, it's done. Eight people, eight pieces. You've been given your piece, and you can enjoy it, but when it's gone, it's gone. That's what this is. Friends, what is your life? God is giving you on a silver platter the time you have on this earth. The thing is, you don't know how long it is. One month, one week, one year, ten years. For some of you, I talked to somebody the other day, and they're like, I never thought I'd live this long. You know? You don't know how long it will be, but he's given it to you as a gift. So don't throw it away. This portion that he's allotted to you, use it wisely. That transitions into the last section of this, the last section of this first section we're looking at, enjoying life before the face of God. And that is work hard because it's the only chance you get. Don't be lazy. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. Once you leave, you only get one chance to work. So do your best. Work hard. Don't, don't be lazy. Don't slack off. I've often told my wife, if I go back to college, I would do it so differently. And I think we all would say that if I could do something over, I'd do it so differently. And yet we keep doing the same things over and over again, right? Work hard. 
We see this reflected in chapter 10, down in verses 16 through 19. Woe to you when your king is a child and your prince's feast in the morning. Nobody wants a leader who's got everything backwards. Happy are you when your king is a son of nobility. In other words, he knows what he's doing. Your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. If you don't work hard, things fall apart. So take care of what God's given to you. Have a good work ethic for the glory of God. Provide for your home, verse 19 of chapter 10. Bread is made for laughter, the wine gladdens life. Money answers everything. It's just a proverb saying if you don't work hard, you'll have a much harder life. Whatever you do in this life, give it everything you can. Go all in. Why? Because verse 18 of chapter 9, laziness will ruin your life. Proverbs 6, go to the anthou sluggard. Proverbs 12, 11, the one who works his land will have plenty to eat. The one who doesn't won't. Proverbs 24, 30, 34, I pass by the field of the sluggard, the vineyard of a man lacking sense. It's overgrown with thorns. Ground was covered with nettles. I received instruction. Friend, don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. If you're here and you're under the age of 30, Listen very carefully. Set a pattern early in your life of getting up early and working hard. For some young people, they stay up till 2 and 3 in the morning saying, I'm not tired. Yeah, the reason you're not tired is because you're not working hard enough in the first hours of the day. Because if you work hard enough, you collapse into bed and you're tired. So build a habit when you're young of working hard of providing for your family. Well, I don't have a family. If God gives you a family, you need to be a provider. So provide for the family that God may give you. For the glory of God, have a good work ethic. Evidently, the Thessalonians had a problem with this. First Thessalonians 4. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. Friend, if you struggle being a busybody, you need to find a job. Go do something. Working in an orderly and faithful way reflects God's character because God is a God who created this world as a world of order. He is a faithful God. And when your life is ordered and faithful, you reflect his character. Lastly, in the few minutes we have, we're going to do a flyover of chapter 10. Heed wisdom's call. Live life before the face of God. Because my life is short, how do I operate my life? Number one, live life before the face of God. Enjoy life before the face of God. Number two, heed wisdom's call. In layman terms, don't be stupid, okay? Heed wisdom's call. Don't be foolish. Don't be a foolish person. As Solomon has done throughout the book, he turns to a list of proverbial truths from verse 11 of chapter 9 all the way down through the, verse, uh, the, verse, uh, the, the last verse of chapter 10, verse 20. And he just begins listing Proverbs. And I'm going to give you some general categories. I looked at the way three or four different people organize this passage. I'll organize it different. So I came up with my own. It's not inspired. It's not perfect. If you don't like it, throw it away. But I'm going to give you kind of five categories briefly that these are organized in. Wisdom is reflecting the character of God. Foolishness is acting in a way that is contrary to God's character. So if you're walking towards Christ, you're going to act in wisdom. And if you're not walking towards Christ, you're going to act in foolishness. And here are the categories. Number one, recognize God orchestrates everything in your life. Verses 11 and 12. Under the sun, it looks like, uh, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Under the sun, it looks like it's just random, but God is in control. 
Wisdom recognizes that there is not one second of one minute of one hour of one day of one year in your life, not one second that God is not intricately in control of. Ephesians 1.11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8.28, God works all things for the good of his people. Colossians 1.15 and 17, he's the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him, for him, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And that passage just means God made everything and God preserves everything. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases, and we could go on and on and on and on and on. God's in control. There's no such thing as randomness in your life. There's no such thing as luck. Everything in your life is organized and orchestrated by a faithful God who loves you and is doing everything for your spiritual growth. So recognize God's sovereignty. Number two, wisdom is better than strength. If you're going to spend your time on something, spend your life gaining wisdom. And that's this story that he gives in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 9 about uh, a king who's besieging a city. And the the army is raised up, and they're the big, strong, burly men, right? Uh, Brawn, not brains. And and they're trying to fight him off, and they can't. And meanwhile, there's this poor guy who's really wise. He's like, hey, if you just look over here, you could win. That's what he's saying. And by the wisdom of this poor person who was never remembered, nobody knows his name, and everybody thinks that the army actually won, the city was rescued. So prioritize wisdom. That's not an excuse not to work out. It's a reference of saying, prioritize wisdom. That's how valuable it is in your life. Wisdom protects you from those who would seek to destroy you. Christianity is under attack all around us, and what we don't need is more, peop- more Christians standing up and screaming about it. We need more Christians who know their Bible well enough to know what the truth is and what falsehood is. We need people who have the ability to look around our culture at what's happening, even in mainstream Christian culture, and to look on it with wisdom and to say, I've seen that before. That doesn't end well. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not a reflection of God's character. Wise enough to examine what's happening around us. Because victory is found in looking to the wisdom of the word and aligning your heart with biblical truth. Often, look at verse uh, 17 of chapter 9. Wisdom uh, calls in the streets, but foolishness calls even louder. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of the ruler among fools. Often the loudest person in the room is probably not the one you need to be listening to. Set your heart to pursue wisdom. Wisdom comes in the quietness of the moment with reading and meditating on the word of God. Number three, a little folly ruins great wisdom. Wisdom is vulnerable, and inserting just a little bit of foolishness, just a little bit of error, ruins the entire thing. I'll tell you this one story. Um, there was, I was at summer camp as a kid. I was probably, man, I was probably in fourth grade, and I remember this like it was yesterday. The speaker got up there with a blender, and he was going to make a milkshake. 
And, and he puts in, of course, how many of you want to taste his milkshake? And all these kids, oh, me, and all this kind of stuff. So he pulls the blender out, and he puts in vanilla ice cream, and he puts in chocolate chips, and he puts in chocolate syrup, and he blends it all together. And he's like, who wants to taste this? We're all raising our hands. And then he pulls out, I'm not trying to be gross, he pulls out a cow patty and puts it down and just takes a little bit and throws it in the blender and blends it in. How many of you want to taste it now? And we all were like, what just happened? And I remember that like it was yesterday. But then he said, listen, just a little error ruins the whole thing. And I never forget that. In fact, I probably should have brought a blender and done the illustration for you. And then you'd never forget it. But friends, just a little bit of folly ruins wisdom. It takes a lifetime to build a godly testimony, and it takes 15 minutes to destroy everything. Pursue wisdom. Number four. By the way, that's chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Number four, chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. Those in high positions should not assume they are wise just because of their position. My brother graduated from West Point Military Academy, did really well, played sports, did different things, and graduated as a second lieutenant, was sent overseas. And he, when he was telling us a little bit about his life, he said, I found that the most viable thing I can do is to pull in the guy who's under me, who's been there for 10 or 15 years, you know, that grunt sergeant who doesn't have the patience to be in leadership, but he knows what's going on. And I need to learn from him. And if you're in a position of leadership, friends, do not assume that just because you're the leader means that you're the wisest person in the room. Because position does not equal wisdom. That no matter where we are placed, we need to continue to pursue biblical wisdom. As he says in chapter 10, I've seen princes walking on the ground and I've seen slaves riding horses. And he's using that as a picture to tell you that in the king's palace, there are some princes who have no wisdom, who are total fools. And there are some servants in the king's palace who are wise beyond recognition. Wisdom, in this sense, guides your activities. He who digs a pit will fall into it, so be careful when you dig. Serpent will bite a person breaking through the wall, so you need brain and bronze to break down a wall. He's using these illustrations here to show you the value of wisdom. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, so you don't just need to go through life, you need to go through life with Wisdom. My favorite one is the one about the axe. You can chop wood as much as you want with a dull axe, and it will probably work, but if you just take a few minutes to step back and sit down and sharpen your tool, your life will be so much easier. And friends, we need iron sharpening iron of both our own time in the Scripture to gain wisdom and others around us who are pushing us towards Christ-likeness. Lastly, How do you operate your life in heeding wisdom's call? Friends, can I encourage you to watch your words? Watch your words. A wise person is revealed by what he said, by what he says. Chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. 
and verse 20. The word of a wise man's mouth wins him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. As we've said many times in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's better, Proverbs says, to keep your mind, your mouth closed and be thought to be wise than to open your mouth and have everyone realize that you're actually a fool. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. The end of his talk is madness. The fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? I love verse 15. If you look down chapter 10, verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way of the city. What he's saying is, this guy talks a big talk, but when the rubber meets the road, he has no idea what's going on. Like, oh yeah, I work, you know, 15 hours a day, blah, 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 blah. And then he goes to work, and after three hours, he's spent. And he can't even get home. Because he's been spouting off all this stuff and foolishness rather than concealing his foolishness and, and maybe even not talking at all or speaking in wisdom. And then verse 20, we should heed. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice and some winged creature will tell the matter. Friend, gossip and slander, they destroy churches, they destroy relationships, they ruin families. In the words of Bambi, if you can't say something nice, don't say something at all. If you just have to say something, you probably shouldn't. Don't live by the rule of cannot not. You know what a cannot not is? I just cannot not say something. Yes, you can. It's called wisdom. Close the mouth and smile. Let's not let our lives be driven by foolishness and slander and gossip because gossip and slander have a way of finding their way back to those who it's being talked about. A wise person understands the power of the tongue. Your words have the power to make or break someone's day. Friends, once something is said, it can never be taken back. And once something is said, there are only two options. It can either be forgotten or forgiven. And very rarely are hurt words forgotten. So it's better that they're not said at all. Death is certain. You only get one chance at this life. Eternity is forever. Live life before the face of God in its fullness and heed wisdom's call. God, we're so thankful for your scripture which so clearly outlines for us how you love us, how you desire a life for us that is a life that has tastes of eternity, just hors d'oeuvres, splashes of heaven. I pray that we would recognize our need to live our lives before your face. That we would take advantage of reflecting you and your character to those around us. that we would heed wisdom's call as often the call of wisdom is not the loud call ringing in the streets, but the silent whisper coming from your word. 
that we would take time to read your word, to study your word, to understand your character so that we can in turn reflect that character to others. May our lives reflect these truths so that believers may be edified and so unbelievers may be pointed to you. 